Well, uh, good evening and welcome to another edition of Gray Matters, the weekly news and media talk show. My name is Dick Whaley. And I'm Jim Dwyer. And late breaking news that uh, George Bush has decided that Scooter Libby's jail sentence was excessive. So while not actually pardoning him, he's uh, commuting the sentence. Altogether? <laughs> Seriously, altogether? Well, it's a little unclear. I don't know the details. And I don't, you know, the distinction between a pardon and uh, commuting is a little vague in my opinion. But uh, um, I'm sure we'll uh, find out more about this in upcoming weeks. That, of course, while he's in Kennebunk, Port, Maine. Meeting uh, Vladimir Putin, as uh, Marine Dowd put it so well, Putin has put the Putin back in Rasputin. <laughs> She's been funny lately. Yeah. A lot of material to work with, though. A lot of material. And, of course, let's give George Bush a brain damage award. This is the fourth year anniversary of Bring Him On. He expressed confidence at the time that we had enough security troops on the ground to, quote, fight him over there. So while uh, <clears throat> the Iraqi uh, security forces continue to sit down, we continue to stand up. Only that policy has uh, also gone awry. It's a game of uh, the hokey pokey where uh, limbs are being blown off and really very little is being accomplished. Uh, the one piece of good news is that, uh, according to the Financial Times, the uh, <clears throat> there's a, been a fall in the Iraqi civilian death toll, mm -hmm. and that can only be good news. Um, however, the surge is keeping U.S. casualties high. Um, if they're not the highest that they've been, uh, they're pretty close. Well, the last three months have been the highest of the uh, of the war. There's been over 100 killed in all three months. In fact, ironically, in June it was 100 on the nose, uh, which of course suggests that uh, probably, uh, I think I saw the statistics on this, that uh, well over 1,000 will, will basically die in a year's time. Um, since last year, and uh, the uh, death rate for the American soldiers have have gone up considerably. There's also, of course, an amazing uh, dispute about the actual number of Iraqis that have been killed in the uh, in so-called Operation Freedom or whatever <laughs> the original uh, euphemism that was used uh, to characterize our invasion of Iraq really is. Um, the Iraqi Health Ministry, by the way seems to have uh, statistics that are uh, considerably lower than uh, the United Nations, for instance. And also, of course, there's this famous Lancet study that uh, puts mm -hmm. uh, the death toll um, somewhere in the neighborhood of between 300 and 30,000 and as many as 960,000. These, of course, are scary numbers. And uh, needless to say, last year the United Nations did officially report that well over a thousand Iraqi um, civilians were dying every month. Now, of course, the United States is not uh, killing all of these people. Alas, sectarian violence is uh, part of the problem. But I heard an interesting analysis on uh, a show called On the Media the other day about how the phrase 
Al-Qaeda is now being used to describe... Any and everything. Yeah, it's become the new international communist conspiracy, right. Mandrake. Yeah, I think in, in Bush's, <laughs> uh, one of his more recent speeches, he used the phrase 29 times in about a 25-minute speech. And we've even seen over the weekend uh, with the uh, goings-on in Britain, uh-huh. uh, and of course there's you know, sort of murky details about who these people really are. One's been identified as a Iraqi uh, doctor, and another as a Jordanian doctor. Um, whether this is an ad hoc group or uh, something uh, a little uh, bigger is a little unclear. One uh, terrorism expert pointed out that almost all of the attacks in Britain have ultimately been uh, linked back to Pakistan, mm-hmm. and that Pakistan is actually uh, where the United States doesn't actually have any troops. And, of course, the situation in Afghanistan is uh, it, it, it's sort of in flux. There's uh, The Canadian government is even debating whether to bring their troops out. Um, there have been some rumblings, even from some of our European allies, that uh, they, too, want to get out. This is officially a NATO operation um, in Afghanistan, but uh, it suggests in, in uh, conjunction with the amazing increase in civilian deaths from American airstrikes in uh, Afghanistan itself that uh, there are big problems with this so-called global war on terror, and I would just urge all um, listeners out there to view this term al-Qaeda with some skepticism. Um, It's been pointed out, and I'm just referring uh, to an article by Lawrence Wright, who's written a new book that I have not yet read, uh, something about the burning towers and the shadow of the burning towers, in uh, the uh, September uh, 1st, 2006 edition of The New Yorker, where he points out that... uh, Quite frankly, a huge chunk of al-Qaeda was um, killed in the initial invasion of Iraq. He, he puts the figure at 80%, and that al-Qaeda was in complete disarray. And if we're going to define al-Qaeda as a coalition between Ayman al-Zawari's uh, Muslim Brotherhood and bin Laden's organization, which is essentially uh, what we've been led to believe, that we have to say cannot be everywhere. <laughs> And we, we need to know more about these uh, these groups. And, and we've pointed out before that BBC, uh, British uh, intelligence experts in Iraq, have put the number of insurgent groups at somewhere between 17 and 19. So this kind of nonsensical notion that this is all al-Qaeda, I think, is becoming uh, not credible, uh, to say the least. That term is uh, sufficiently vague and is, in fact, being used by the Bush administration as another propaganda tool. The language, al-Qaeda, is responsible for all of this. Um, It still resonates. It has the 9-11 connection. All the other uh, attempts that they've made to uh, link uh, Saddam to 9-11 and weapons of mass destruction, these are all concepts and constructs that have been deconstructed. And so al-Qaeda is one of the few things that they have left that sounds legitimate. And, of course, part of the linkage between this commuting of Scooter Lib- Libby's sentence is Libby was one of the most activist members of the so-called Project for the New American Sh- Century as Dick Cheney's henchman uh, in uh, 
promoting uh, the uh, the original concept of invading Iraq. Uh, there continues to be a historical debate as to whether this uh, was one of the first items on Bush's agenda when he took office uh, in January of 2001, well before 9-11. Um, so the documents need to be seen, and we need to know more. But uh, what is quite clear is several very credible sources have uh, unequivocally uh, you know, revealed to the public that uh, uh, these... Uh, discussions of overthrowing Saddam Hussein were well underway before 9-11. So uh, the uh, truth is uh, still buried uh, in the uh, concept of executive privilege, and certainly by commuting Scooter Libby's sentence, uh, Bush has bought more silence, and I think is a further confirmation that he is uh, indeed a lame duck, but as we've seen in recent Supreme Court rulings, uh, certainly not uh, without influence uh, on our political um, life today. Indeed. And I do just want to quickly mention here that although there has been a decline in the Iraqi civilian death toll, the numbers are still staggeringly high. Yeah. Um, 1,200 Iraqi civilians were killed during the last month as opposed to 1,900 in May. So that's still... A staggeringly high number. Some of the higher um, casualty figures, by the way, that have been, uh, shall we say, publicized in this uh, joint Lancet-John Hopkins studies are the result of extrapolation. And some of those um, statistical um, extrapolations may be slightly in error. But I think that it's important to realize that the range of casualties in Iraq is staggering, and that at the end of the day, uh, despite all of the uh, debates about that number, um, the United States will, as Colin Powell pointed out, if uh, the pottery rule, if you break it, you own it. We are responsible for the security in Iraq. Uh, because well, any occupying force is legally responsible for the well-being and safety of those whom they occupy. So we invaded... We own it, and unfortunately, George Bush's legacy, uh, while he may try and whitewash this, will probably be that uh, he killed more uh, people in uh, Mesopotamia than Saddam Hussein and the grandson of Genghis Khan combined, because back in 1258, it was actually quite, quite a slaughter. One of the original descendants of Genghis Khan that sacked uh, Baghdad as the Mongols uh, toppled one of those... Uh, ancient uh, Arabic uh, caliphates that had been set up in right. Baghdad. Well, that's quite a legacy. Yeah. <laughs> if only uh, somebody will commute uh, George Bush's sentence. Well, I don't know. <laughs> and as far as the legacy based on facts on the ground, um, there's another kind of a legacy, and this is you know world opinion yeah. in the present day. Uh, today's Financial Times has an interesting article uh, Europeans see U.S. as biggest threat to peace. Um, Europeans consistently regard the U.S. as the biggest threat to world stability. And 32% of the respondents in five European countries, including most of whom are our allies, regard the U.S. as a bigger threat than any other state. Interestingly, in the U.S. itself, where typically North Korea and Iran are seen as the biggest risks, uh, because that's what we've been told, um, 
the youngest U.S. respondents share the Europeans' view. This I find very interesting. As somebody who works in the uh, school system, uh, 35% of American 16 to 24-year-olds identify the U.S. as the chief danger to world stability. Um, this is quite interesting. The poll is consistent with findings last week by the Pew Global Attitudes Project, which found that favorable ratings of the U.S. had declined in 26 of 33 countries over the past five years. That's staggering. Yeah, and the numbers... And embarrassing. Embarrassing, and the numbers on this are, are fascinating because... Uh, um, oh, the guy's name, Andrew Kohut... I saw him on one of the uh, Lehrer NewsHour shows last week uh, discussing this survey. This survey, by the way, um, was conducted in April and May and the Palestinian territories and in uh, 46 countries uh, in, the, uh, in Europe, Asia, the Middle East, Africa, and the Americas and include, uh, included more than 45,000 respondents. Um, and it's interesting that the, the countries where America's uh, favorability rating has gone up are pri primarily in Africa, uh, places like Kenya, Nigeria, and the Ivory Coast. Uh, what America has done for these countries is <laughs> a little unclear. Um, but we were already quite popular in those countries. Uh, we've just gone up a couple of points. Maybe just because we haven't bombed them. Yeah, and we've uh, also uh, gone up in South Korea. It's interesting, in the New York Times article, they don't uh, show what the Palestinian number is. But uh, one of the most relevant um, numbers is, uh, and this is related to uh, Putin... Uh, don't call me Rasputin, uh, visiting with Bush in, Kenny, in, uh, in, in Maine. Apparently he caught a fish today. Um, they're, of course, discussing the missile uh, defense uh, thing. found it interesting that in the Czech Republic and in Poland, where this uh, really popular missile system that Bush wants to base uh, oh, right. <laughs> have gone down considerably in the Czech Republic. And by the way, this is comparing 2002... And 2007. So this is when America was still sort of basking in some, shall we say, sympathy that was related to 9-11. Um, in the Czech Republic, uh, popularity's or favorability has gone down 26 points. It's now at 45%. It used to be at 71%. And even in Poland, uh, it's gone down from 79% to 61%. Uh, also, interestingly, in Canada... Uh, popularity, favorability of America has gone down 17 points from 72% now to 55%. And, of course, the numbers in uh, Western Europe uh, that we associate with Britain, France, and Germany, staggering declines. Um, Britain, 75% to 51%. France, 62% to 39%. Germany, 60% to 30%. Uh, and, of course, Germany was at the heart of the, you know, the heart of one of the Cold War uh, issues. And then another fascinating one is Turkey. Um, by the way, we've gone up slightly in Pakistan, but our numbers were so low back in 2002. Um, and, of course, that those low numbers in 2002 actually might have been related to our 
uh, involvement in starting a war in Afghanistan uh, went from 10% to 15%. So we're up five Woo-hoo. points there. Yeehaw. <laughs> but in Turkey, uh, we've gone from 30 to 9. Wow. Which is uh, staggering. And, uh, of course, uh, Pakistan is... Uh, it's what, what you want to keep your eye on. There are lots of problems with the Pakistan situation. Uh, Musharraf is, uh, mm, shall we say, in a very tenuous uh, situation these days. And uh, it's been noted that past military dictatorsh- dictatorships in Pakistan have not ended well. Most uh, were assassinated eventually. Yeah, there's a lot of uh, political changes uh nibbling away at the edges there in uh, Pakistan. But before we move on from these numbers, I just wanted to quickly mention, because I read the statistic of 35% of American 16 to 24-year-olds identify the U.S. as the chief source of instability in the world. On June 28th, uh, in the Ann Arbor News, uh, a column by Maureen Dowd was printed. Um, and we give brain damage awards out quite frequently on this show, but uh, don't often get the chance to give an opposite sort of award, uh, a thumbs-up award mm-hmm. or a uh, nicely done award. But a group of high school students pulled off a little coup here Oh yeah! by uh, slipping an unwelcome piece of news to, uh, to the president. A group of high school, I'm reading now from her column, a group of high school presidential scholars visiting the White House on Monday surprised President Bush by slipping him a handwritten letter pleading with him not to let America become known for torture and urging him to stick to the Geneva Conventions with terror detainees. Um, Bush actually, I guess, foolishly opened this uh, note and read it right in front of them. He probably expected it to be a nice little coloring book picture that they had drawn. But uh, one of the students in the group from uh, Massachusetts, who's actually heading to Yale in the fall, handed W the letter, signed by 50 students as they posed for a picture. She told CNN that her mother had been a presidential scholar in 1968 and regretted not saying something to Lyndon Johnson about the Vietnam War. She also said that her grandparents were Japanese-Americans interned in World War II, so this is a student who's well aware of American history, Mm -hmm. America's role in shaping world history, and, you know, good job for these students. This is just... It gives me goosebumps to think that teenagers could have pulled this off where the corporate-owned mainstream media has so squeamishly allowed Bush to destroy this country's reputation. And it's interesting how younger people in, uh, in other uh, recent surveys have shown to, to be far more liberal uh, than their <laughs> elders, <laughs> both their parents and their grandparents. And uh, this, of course, I think explains in part uh, a little bit of the Barack Obama phenomenon. Uh, I don't have that those data in front of me, but it's well over 50 percent. And that's fascinating because in most national uh, surveys on the subject, about 38 percent of Americans identify as being conservative and about 20 percent identify as being liberal. But amongst the young, those identifying themselves as being liberal— um, goes way over 50% and is uh, somewhat reminiscent, I think, of the fact that uh, while uh, not being subjected to the draft uh, the way uh, young people were back in the uh, 1960s, that, uh, of course, turned into the inner turmoil, uh, the domestic turmoil of the Vietnam War, you know, the burning draft cards and, 
and all of the problems that that created. Of course, it didn't seem to create any problem for uh, Dick Cheney or George Bush. They didn't need to burn their draft cards. No, they came up with uh, other arrangements, or, or Bush uh, famously put it, uh, he didn't finish his National Guard uh, service because uh, he was too busy. Cheney said something similar about why he uh, quickly got married uh, just in time. <laughs> I think the day before. <laughs> Will you marry me? <laughs> yes. Might explain uh, Lynn Cheney. <laughs> Indeed, it might. We won't go into her. Take some explaining. <laughs> her uh, skeletons. But um, now th- this is interesting. Another thing that's fascinating, uh, last week, I don't know if you saw this, but um, th- this actually made the front page of the New York Times. I didn't even see it reprinted in the uh, Ann Arbor News whatsoever, uh, partially because the terrorist attacks in London uh, somehow should we say, uh, overrode this story rather quickly. Oh, this is the Pan Am 103? Yeah. Uh, this is fascinating because uh, the uh, suspect, Ab- Abdul uh, al-Magrahi, has basically been given a um, a hearing on an appeal. Um, and there's just by coincidence happened to be an article uh, several weeks ago in the London Review of Books by Hugh Miles on Pan Am 103, entitled Inconvenient Truths. And he goes into the uh, appeal issue and some of the questionable um, things that went on in this trial, uh, which, uh, of course, suggests that Abdul al-Magrahi may not have been actually involved in Pan Am 103 and that this was actually an effort by the British and American governments to pin the blame on Gaddafi, uh, thereby, um, let's see, they're, they're in, entitled apparently to $2.7 billion in compensation um, by the Libyan government for the fact that, uh, oh, let's see, what is the number? 243 passengers, 16 crew members, and 11 people on the ground were killed in, the, in this terrorist attack, and it was before 9-11, the biggest uh, American terrorist attack. I, w- I wonder what, uh, by the way, the American government compensates Afghan civilians. Yeah, I've wondered about that myself. <laughs> I don't think it's uh, in the $2.7 billion range. Well, this plane actually went down after having uh, taken off from Heathrow. Yeah. It had come from Frankfurt to Heathrow, and then on its way to North America over Scotland. It blew uh, up. blew up. And it, there's been a lot of debate, you know, that theoretically the uh, <clears throat> bomb was placed aboard in Frankfurt. And the reason that it hadn't blown up between Frankfurt and Germany, or Frankfurt, Germany, and London was the plane didn't get high enough. Right. And it, was, it used some sort of an, an altitude uh, mechanism to ignite the explosives. Uh, needless to say, the ultimate, quote, smoking gun was this... Uh, uh, clothing that was found in a Samsonite suitcase. Uh, interestingly, by the way, the um, bodies and debris were strewn over an 81-mile corridor, uh, which may raise some interesting, um, well, we'll just put that in your factual memory bank uh, regarding uh, explosions uh, in the sky. Uh, Because the the gasoline ignited um, part of the uh, wing fuselage. And it's also fascinating. I didn't know some of these weird details, but I'll just read this one. 
It says, uh, most anyone not strapped down was whipped out of the plane uh, because of the change in air pressure, making the passengers' lungs expand four times to their normal volume, and everyone lost consciousness. A few survived all the way down until they hit the ground. Rescuers found that found them clutching crucifixes or holding hands still strapped in their seats. Wow. Wear your seatbelts. <laughs> At least you'll have time to... Scary. Yeah. That goes into morbidity that we won't uh, dwell That's on. Stuff of nightmares right there. Yeah, but uh, it's interesting uh, that you get those sorts of forensic details uh, in this uh, London Review of Books article dated June 21st, 2007. Uh, this, by the way, was written well before this Scottish uh, hearing. So there's going to be a hearing in the case, but I wanted to point out some of the interesting facts that I think are relevant from this article. Um, and this basically goes into the substance of the, of the uh, you know, the, the, uh, the case itself. Uh, the, the key prosecution witness is apparently a, a Maltese clothier named Tony Gauci. Um and as one uh, <clears throat> Scottish uh, legal expert put it, um, he questioned the reliability of shopkeeper Gauchi, the prosecution star witness. Quote, Gauchi was not quite the full shilling. I think even his family would say that he was an apple short of a picnic. Uh, he was quite a tricky guy. I don't think he was deliberately lying, but if you asked him... The same question three times, he would just get irritated and refuse to answer. Since McGrath's la uh, latest appeal, thousands of reports detailing freight baggage movements, etc., have been handed over. Largely in German, many handwritten, the papers were translated by the Crown at taxpayer expense. The Privy Council Judicial Committee, made up of law lords and senior judges, has declared that the Crown's refusal to disclose evidence is a breach of the European Human Rights Convention. More damaging still, an unnamed British senior police officer known to be a member of the uh, Association of Police Officers in Scotland implies that his rank as assistant chief constable or higher has testified that a McGrahi's defense team that crucial evidence was fabricated. Uh, this anonymous senior officer says that the American government had a hand in Fixing the trial, Hans Kochler, a U.N. observer, reported that at the time the trial was politically charged and a verdict totally incomprehensible. The U.S. Department of Justice presents the court as the, the court as highly problematic because it gave the impression that they were superiors handling vital matters of the prosecution strategy, deciding which documents were to be released in open court and which parts of information contained in certain documents were to be withheld. The prosecution, Kotler said, dismissed evidence on the grounds that it was not relevant, but now that the evidence has finally partially been released, it turns out to be very relevant. So this is part of the defense. It's basically a very peculiar thing about Scottish law. Um, I found out in the article that in England and Wales, the Crown, which is the prosecution, has to disclose all material, and I'm quoting from the article here, to the defense according to the rules set out uh, in statute. In Scotland, the Crown is allowed to modify or withhold evidence if it considers that withholding it 
is in the, quote, public interest, unquote. And uh, that's what's peculiar uh, about what's been withheld and what, uh, you know, what is relevant. But apparently, um, and of course the prevailing theory regarding this whole thing is that the PLFP was um, responsible for this bombing. A cell was broken up in Germany uh, basically in uh, the fall of... Uh, of um, 1998, which is when this uh, Lockerbie uh, bombing happened, and uh, the, one of the 98 was wasn't that oh 98, 88, 88 yeah, yeah excuse me um, sorry yeah that's interesting I, that must just be a, a misprint <laughs> um. Anyway, one of the gang of this uh, cell that was broken up was a guy named Abu Talb, who was later uh, found to have, uh, have a calendar in his flat with the date tw 21st of December circled, 1988. New evidence is now in the hands of the Magrahi defense, which proves for the first time that Abu Talb was in Malta when the Lockerbie bombing took place. Um, Abu Talb... Um, basically is, has been arrested in Sweden on a, another terrorism charge. But one of the fascinating things is that German federal police have provided financial records that show on the 23rd of December 1988, two days after the bombing, the Iranian government deposited 5.9 million pounds into a Swiss bank account that belonged to the arrested members of the PLFP. So a lot of these gory details in theory are going to come out in this appeal, and it will be interesting to see how closely um, the media follows this event. Um, we can go into more of the interesting conflicting theories about this, but <clears throat> theoretically, uh, when the American and British government were pursuing this case, they were trying to get Syria and Iran to cooperate. Right with the initial invasion of Iraq back in H.W. Bush's tenure uh, back during the first Iraq war. And uh, Gaddafi was the convenient scapegoat, and he was essentially blackmailed into paying up the money mm -hmm. to, quote, normalize relations. Britain and the United States forced sanctions on Libya, and Libya basically paid for freedom, so to speak. So this is an interesting case uh, that we'll continue to follow. Looks like uh, we're close to the end of uh, the program today. Yazoo City Calling will be coming up next. We'll have to talk a little bit next week about the foot dragging of the Israeli transfer of Palestinian tax funds to uh, actual Palestinians. Some interesting uh, developments there. And the way it's been handled in the papers is quite interesting. But we'll save that for next week. Well, thank to, thanks to Yelchin for engineering this evening. Do stay tuned. Yazoo City Calling coming up next right here on WCBN FM Ann Arbor. WCBN Org. WCBN Org. Visit us at www. WCBN org and listen to us via streaming MP3 or QuickTime. White plague, lung 